but in 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 all this time and now 11 episodes you haven't let me slide once so I have to point out that you did just refer to the Sixers as the Sexers, which is that's, God. That's you stuff. caught that? Uh, of course I did. Um, like you, you think I don't hey, listen? I listen. Like, at least I'm not going to deny it. That's the thing. Yeah. I own up to it on the spot. I'm not going to make you in post put in like the time when I said it and slow it down in order, and then still contest it afterwards. I'm just going to say I said I called the Sexers. I didn't say and that's okay. Wemby the Yama man. I did not say that. I know I didn't. I said Wemby. It's like I so uh, all right. God, how did this turn back around on shitting on me? That's bull. That's bullshit. This is Hot Hand Theory. This is a podcast where we talk about the NBA and break things down from an analytical perspective. I'm your co-host XJ. He is my brilliant co-host Jeff. Jeff, if I had to guess. I have to say this is probably the most anticipated episode of Hot Hand Theory yet um, because last Saturday I was driving on a short weekend kind of getaway trip with my fiance. Really, it was to avoid the fireworks in my neighborhood because they go crazy here and my dog is not having it. So we we, we went out to like the kind of the countryside, but I was not able to avoid fireworks as en route. I learned about the Knicks dealing uh, or creating a trade centered around Emmanuel Quickly and RJ Barrett for OG Ananobi. And given that we are two huge believers in the impact that Emmanuel Quickly has on team success, and I think I can speak for you in saying that we both also love what OG brings to the table, we've, uh, I don't know, we've got a lot of thoughts that are out there from social media, but I'm really looking forward to crystallizing some of those thoughts with you and, and talking about what I like and don't like from the actual move on an actual podcast. So, um, but I, I'm most interested in hearing from you first. What, what are your thoughts, your broad takeaways and any specific things that you want to drill down on? My first thought is, was that fireworks thing you just said, was that like pre-scripted or was that just totally off cuff? No, nah, that's 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 why we went out there. We went out there for the fireworks or to avoid the fireworks. Yeah, but then you related it to the fireworks that happened in the NBA. That was just good. That was dude, that, dude, was, I, that was a bar. Let me tell you, I okay. Behind the curtain. I used the same line on Casual Friday on our last KFS podcast. So, that's so like, it was pre-scripted. All right. Not pre-scripted. Right. It's the same theme. The fireworks yeah. you know, on the, in the sky, fireworks in the, the trade, whatever. Anyway. Yeah, go, I'm, just, go, say, go I'm just saying. I thought you literally just were like, oh, I've got, a, I've got an analogy to make. You know? like nah, I, nah, nah, nah. I'm not my that talented. View, my view of you went down just the slightest bit. You know, the shine has worn off. That's good. I think it, we need to have realistic expectations for one another. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll take it. I'm just I'm just better at setting the mediocre bar. Um, <laughs> um, so I think we're going to have maybe slightly different thoughts on this trade right now. I'll say this. I was, as a Knicks fan, not the happiest when it happened. Um. Because like you, I think that the sky is the limit for Emmanuel quickly. I think that regardless of how this trade ends up looking from the Knicks side, you know, however well OG and Anobi plays, how high his impact is, there's always going to be some form of regret. Not in the fact that they didn't, you know, hand the keys to Emmanuel quickly, but that they didn't even bother asking the question. They didn't even try. Um, it would be one thing if they had exhausted any options and been like, ah, you know what? We just don't see it. 
we're going to try to trade him at pretty high value and get someone we see it more for. That's fine. That, that would be fine. But you had all this data at your disposal that said that there was more for him to give. And through the years, there, that data kept being reinforced. It kept compounding on itself almost. Like every time quickly played, really good things happen. And every time he didn't play, good things happen less often. And so you would think that at a certain point, you know, you have this data of, oh, Brunson and quickly. Yeah, it feels like they're too small, but actually they're beating opponents by over 11 points per 100 possessions. Like maybe you should just try it. You know, if Brunson is correctly the guy you're trying to build around going forward maybe a guy like Emmanuel quickly who's one of the best help defenders in the entire NBA is exactly what you want next to him somebody who mitigates breakdowns when they happen and if you know we had a large sample of those minutes and there were warts that were loud and reflected in the data it would be like okay we all agree that Emmanuel quickly is an impactful player in a vacuum but he can't reach his peak impact here in New York. Let's let's look for a trade. I, I think me and you, two pretty reasonable people who really like Emmanuel quickly as a basketball player, would have been fine with that. Would it would have been okay? They tried, but they didn't even try. And so, if Emmanuel quickly works out in Toronto, the what if of what would have happened if the Knicks tried? What would they? How would they have perceived his value to the Knicks? That cloud is going to be hovering over them unless I guess they like win a championship with with, with this core. I, I think that's just about it. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, I 100% agree with all of that. And I think that that is my main issue with the trade. And I think that that is the part that there's some disconnect between at least myself and some other Knicks fans and other people who are evaluating the trade. It's not that I don't love OG Ananobi. I love OG Ananobi. Like I, I, I love him as a player. I always have. And, you know, obviously on high hand theory, we talk a lot about our belief in impact metrics and not that they're the end all be all of evaluation, but they really help quantify what we're seeing on the court. And OG was top three in defensive EPM uh, last year, which is the literally the best way we have to measure defensive impact, like defensive impact, not defensive ability, but impact on the defensive side of the court. And he was literally top three in the entire NBA and has been either 87th percentile or better every season since he was 22 years old, besides this season so far. He is peak level three and D. Like, you know, I, of course I love OG Ananobi. Like, I've even gone so far as to argue that if he just plays defense at the level that he has so far and hits open catch and shoot threes... And literally has like only the minimal creation ability that he's shown so far. He's still worth to me over $35 million a year just because those specific skill sets are so valuable. So if anything, I'm more, I think I'm more bullish on OG Ananobi than most like the vast majority of people. Um, and but when we're talking about Manuel quickly, we're talking about one of the most impactful guards in the entire league at 24 years old who has never caught crossed the 30 minute per game threshold in his entire career. And the only reason he ever got close was because he started all those games for Brunson last year. Um, and I was looking it up and, and I, I mentioned EPM. There are 47 players in the entire NBA that have played at least 50 games last year and had at least a 2.3 EPM of those players. There are three this year that average under 30 minutes per game. Mike Conley and Chris Paul are two of them. They're, those guys are 36 and 38 years old. So there's a reason why they're averaging less than 30 minutes per game, not because of their production. 
and Emmanuel quickly. That's it. That's the list. Three guys who have had a, had at least a 2.3 EPM last year and are averaging under 30 minutes per game this year. And Quickly's no, he's not even sniffing 30 minutes per game. It's not like it's close. Um, there's just nobody like this is this is not an exaggeration. This is not, not hyperbole. There is nobody in the league as good as Emmanuel Quickly that it is being utilized the way that he was in New York. He is the one player who is being utilized the way that he is, despite his impact. And so my issue with the trade is not that I don't love OG Ananobi or don't love the fit. It's an amazing fit. It's a flawless fit. He would fit in really with any team just based on his skill set. But it's an amazing fit here next to Brunson and Randall. I just think that the context around the trade is important. Like the and the context is just ignored when you're saying this was an amazing deal. What a what a coup by the front office. What an amazing home run deal that this is a A plus plus. It's like, bro, like you did you did not maximize the value of a player on your team in spite of all the data that we've seen. We we don't have any data to suggest Emmanuel quickly shouldn't have been a starter for this team. We don't have it. There's nothing that we have that can that suggests that. <laughs> Everything that every piece of minutia, minute data that we have says this guy should have been a starter. He should start next to Brunson. His impact is significant. He should play 30 plus minutes. Every other player that has the, his level of impact plays that much. There's no reason why he shouldn't have. And who knows? His impact would have been, I mean, his uh, value, his trade value would have been higher because there's one thing from going from, okay, this guy is a bench guy who has been really good. And if we squint our eyes, we could kind of see like he'd be a really good starter versus this guy is already a high level starter has proven that he does it in a starting lineup with big minutes. We could see him as a star player. Like those are, those are two tiers in two different categories of players. And unfortunately quickly was traded as sort of the category one more than he was category two. And that's because they didn't play him. <laughs> he didn't play 30. He didn't play. He should have been playing 33 minutes a game, honestly. Um, so that, that is my issue with the trade. I think that you can't throw away the context of how they used, they misutilized and mis mishandled, um, you know, an asset and a player in a manual quickly. And they have no reason, they have no reason for it that I would accept. I, I don't accept that he's small and therefore, voila, he should play 24 minutes per game. Like I, that is, that's not a, a viable a reasonable, uh, excuse to me. And so, yeah, I think that they bungled it. They, they mismanaged a, a really high level player and asset. And that needs to be acknowledged as part of a trade. Yes, they got back what I think is probably going to end up being like 85 or 90 cents on the dollar relative to, to what their value will be moving forward and impact on the game. So it's good. Like, and he fits better here. And not only the other thing I want to say is that not only does OG fit better with the Knicks, but because he disentangles that some of the issues that they have, he becomes addition by subtraction, like by disentangling like the, 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 the glut of guards. And I said this on the last episode of hot hand theory, I said, you know, not only is Emmanuel quickly like has, you know, this is this good and has this impact, but this team wasn't really set up to perform maximally this year, this year, this team was set up to endure injuries, right? Like th those are two different goals that you're kind of targeting for. One is, Okay, if Brunson gets hurt, if DiVincenzo gets hurt, can we take that and still be really good? Another is like, if everybody's healthy, what's our ceiling going to look like? And OG Ananobi, to me, increases that. But that's because we had a bunch of guys who should be getting minutes and couldn't because of the glut and the, lo the logjam. So I think we're going to see this team be better. 
but not because OG Ananobi is a better or more impactful player than Emmanuel Quickly. Um, so yeah, anyway, that that's it was a little bit of a ramble, but that's really where my that's where my issues come down on with the trade. It feels weird, both of us being on this side, because barely two months ago, three months ago, we were on a Strickland podcast together and we vehemently defended the idea of trading OG for RJ. And like it kind of felt like at that time we were on an island then too with the Knicks fans, not just on that podcast, but just in general. Like, I don't know if you remember, but there was hilarious pushback to the idea that we should trade RJ for OG Ananobi. And me and you were just like, what are you talking about? Like what? Like it was just, it, it was so incredibly obvious that it wasn't going, going to work for RJ in New York. If he wasn't going to accept the role that Tibbs wanted for him, or maybe if he wasn't capable of accepting the role of performing the role that Tibbs wanted for him. And that role that Tibbs wants from, you know, a third, fourth option, which is reasonable. Any coach should want to want this from a third or fourth option is to shoot the ball off the catch, attack closeouts and defend with a high impact. And that is made for OG Ananobi. So like there are all these Nick fans that had this idea that were, they were just like, Oh, well, like there are all these things that OG can't do that RJ can do. And it's like those things don't matter on a team with Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle, and they never really did. And that's been reflected in the data for years now. So I'm not trying to give, you know, like an unceremonious send-off to RJ Barrett. It's just like it if there were it, it makes you wonder if there was a way, you know, in the offseason, if OG Ananobi truly was one of their targets all along, could they have just traded RJ and filler and picks for OG Ananobi? Because now all of a sudden you're looking at a championship contending team. If you just added Emmanuel quickly to this core right now, um, I mean, we we talk about the defense and the defense looked great for times against the Minnesota Timberwolves. And you talk about, you know, how the addition of OJ Ananobi and perhaps the subtraction of RJ Barrett, how that kind of slides people to their more natural roles. Let's start with Dante DiVincenzo, you know, like, Dante DiVincenzo was guarding the the opposing team's best player a lot of the times. He was he he is you know best when he's allowed to gamble and passing lanes and play off the ball and be aggressive in that way. All of a sudden, the the existence of OG Ananobi elevates him to play for him to play in his best role. Well, imagine if instead of DiVincenzo, it's quickly who is your second best wing defender in a starting lineup. Quickly is one of the best off-ball helper, rotators, stunt and recovers in the entire NBA. And you have Ananobi guarding the other team's best player and you have quickly playing free safety. Now the stuff that J- Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle do poorly doesn't even really matter. This would be their defense with Hardenstein. Hardenstein is leading the NBA in defensive EPM right now. So Hardenstein isn't the problem, was never the problem. Now you have OG Ananobi, 80th percentile in defensive EPM. We saw the film. We've seen the film for years amazing on ball defender. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about his off ball defense because whoa, was he good at that in that first game uh, in a surprising way you throw Emmanuel quickly in that core. This is, this is a championship contender and one of the best starting lineups in the NBA. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. I, I, I truly believe that. And I think it's funny that people are like, really like this, this team's going to compete. It's like, 
the team fits seamlessly. Like they have everything that you could need in a team, especially in the starting lineup. Like there's nothing that they don't have. They have shooting. They have amazing elite on-ball defense, elite off-ball defense. They have creation, like elite creation coming from two different positions on the court. The spacing is is ridiculous. Like they have passing coming from the five spot, elite all NBA defense from the five spot. Like that's a that's a championship level team. I don't know what to like. There's nothing you could add besides. Uh, Oh, you don't have Giannis. Okay, you don't have Giannis. But like this, aside from having Giannis or AD or whoever or Jokic or something like that, like aside from that, this is as that's as close as you could come to having a perfect synergistic team. Um, so yes, I totally agree with that. And I think, I think, like you said, we vehement, vehemently defended the concept of trading OG for RJ. And what I had always hoped for was RJ and salary and picks for OG. Um, and I feel like it's really funny or frustrating at least to, for, for, for people to say, you know, relative to what the Raptors wanted, you know, he, you have to say he's at work quickly was worth at least two first round picks because I think that the Raptors could have gotten two first and a negative asset like RJ Barrett for OG and an OB. Like I, I, I just have to believe that they could have gotten that. So people are both saying on one end, the Raptors didn't want picks so they they had to trade quickly, but then they're also saying picks are more valuable than quickly. Like, okay, wait. So the Raptors didn't want the thing that was more valuable. <laughs> that that doesn't make sense. Clearly, Emmanuel quickly to the Raptors at least was more valuable than whatever pick package that they could have given, right? Like, and that just to me just not only displays a need that Toronto had, but just a better evaluation of the of Emmanuel quickly as a player. Like that 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 is what that indicates to me. So I just. You know, just to, to, to summarize it, like for me, my issue really just comes with kind of framing fra- the framing of the front office, the Knicks front office as like geniuses who like, you know, did something amazing. And, and like, I just don't appreciate that framing. I just think it's like, yeah, the Raptors loved Emmanuel quickly because they are a smart organization that had a great evaluation of a player who was currently under being underutilized. And they wanted that player and got that player for a guy who they weren't going to resign, whether he it's because he didn't want to or they didn't want to. Um, they weren't going to resign at the dollar amount that he wanted. And that seems like a smart move from them. But I don't think it's an amazing uh, pull off that the Knicks front office did and that they're brilliant for it. Like, it's fine. It's a good trade for the Knicks because I think that they get a piece that fits much better in what they what they want to do i won't say it fits in much better with the team i'll say it fits in much better with what they want to do um but it was an underutilized piece and they did not in my opinion understand the value that Emmanuel quickly brings because they would have played him and utilized him in a much different way than if they did so that's 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 really where i come down on i don't i don't have too many other thoughts on the trade i will say that like it's important to point out that there's we only have so much information. So you're coming down a little bit on the front office here when we have no idea, you know, maybe maybe a bunch of guys in their front office did know how good quickly was and you know, they just valued what Tom Thibodeau does as a head coach so much that they're like, okay, we're not going to get in the way of you like it could just be, okay, the writing's on the wall. Tibbs is never going to play him. We just got to trade him, you know? I Yeah, that's true. Um, and I'm not going to say that... <laughs> I'm not going to say that that's like a deficiency within the front office to choose, essentially choose Tibbs over, 
you know, some of their better players, but or one of their better players. But maybe it's maybe that's fair. Maybe that's fair. Maybe that's what it is. Um, Tibbs wasn't going to play him, and that's just it is what it is. But I don't like when people say, <clears throat> I don't like when people say like he was never going to start here, as if there's some like third party entity that was like a deity is coming from high and saying no, quickly cannot start here. It's like. The organization, <clears throat> excuse me, the organization is choosing not to have him start here. It's not, it's not that like, it's, it's so strange. It's always phrased in this like passive way. He was never going to start here. And so that's why they had to get something for him. Or, or I said the word something, they had to get something of high value for him. He was never going to start here. It was a, an organizational decision, not just Tibbs because the, the organization runs as a whole, like clearly the front office can say, you got to play Emmanuel quickly. He's one of our most valuable players. We need to see him on the court. We need to see what we have. We need to understand. We need to exhaust, as you mentioned, we need to try this. We need to exhaust our options with this player and see what the value that he has and what he can bring to the court and his impact on winning is in this dynamic, in this context that we have heaps of data to suggest would be a really positive outcome. Like it is an organizational decision. It's not just Tibbs saying like, no, I'm not playing quickly. I don't care what you say. Fire me then if I don't. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Maybe he said, maybe he said, fire me if you want me to play quickly more. In that case, if that's what he said, I would fire him. Like if, if that's, if that's your, your, your land, your um, line in the sand, which is fire me if you want me to play quickly more then you know, that's, you got, I guess you got to go. But so I, I don't think that that's what happened. I, and, and you're right. We don't have all the information, but to me, it's just, I don't know. You just didn't, you didn't maximize your asset. And so to, for that, you don't get credit from me. You get, you get some credit for getting a guy who fits really well and a guy who fits your timeline and fits what you want to do. And is going to be an important piece on a championship team, but you don't get credit for trading for the value exchange, essentially. And they didn't maximize it in seasons that were low ceiling seasons. That's, you know, kind of the cherry on top. This wasn't, you know, the Celtics battling in Eastern Conference Finals year after right. year after year, you know, suppressing, oh, we didn't find out if Marcus Smart is a point guard. It's like, all right, dude, like maybe Marcus Smart could have had a different trajectory if he was drafted by a true lottery team. But guess what? Like Marcus Smart was forced to fill in however they asked him to and be his most impactful self within the paradigm that existed because the Celtics were contending for titles year after year after year. The Knicks lost in the first round in five games, missed the playoffs, then made the second round. Like this idea that like, oh my God, what would we lose if we just played quickly six more minutes? Like, dude, (laughs) but that's silly. And, you know, you look back at the end of his second season, obviously the Alec Burks thing is the feast de resistance of patheticness. Like, I don't know what that, like that should have been it right there. Um, I don't know how that was acceptable at all. I still, I still, I'll never understand that. Um, and I, I, I still firmly believe in a, I think we can put a bow on it with this, uh, unless you feel strongly against it, but I think you're going to agree with me here. There's a risk here. I don't think there's much risk on the, the Raptors end. Like, let's say, let's say we're wrong about quickly. That's obviously possible. Let's just say, you know, the data is skewed because whatever reason, Oh, he only played bench players, yada, yada, any reason you want. And quickly is just meant to be a sixth man. That's what he is. And the Knicks got out of him, quote unquote, got out of him at the peak value they could and got a really good player. And the Knicks turned out really good. 
I still think from the Raptors perspective, it's like, okay, we got two under 24, under 25 year old guys for an unrestricted free agent that we weren't going to resign anyways. But like the Knicks carry all the risk here because if things go well in Toronto for quickly or RJ, a guy they drafted number three overall, like, this is like the guy, but 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 specifically and quickly, I actually shouldn't put RJ in there. Not because RJ can't, but because I don't think the I don't think you could ever blame the Knicks for coming to terms with the idea that RJ wasn't going to work in New York. Like yeah. he played over he played over thirty minutes a game. It clearly wasn't going to work in this paradigm. So even if RJ flips a switch in Toronto, I would I not say hold this, the Knicks accountable to that. Ex- yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll say that firmly now. You will never hear me being like, oh my God, the Knicks couldn't make it work with RJ. Like they tried and for whatever reason, RJ. And, and by the way, the Knicks do deserve some pass blame. Like you drafted a rim running wing who needs the ball in his hand and then signed Julius Randle and Marcus Morris. Like that's not exactly the best roster management in terms of optimally building around RJ Barrett. I do believe the Knicks are somewhat liable in RJ's struggling developing struggle to develop in New York. But to the point I'm trying to make, I don't blame and will never blame the Knicks for at this point, seeing the writing on the wall and wanting to move him. But like, there's a risk here with quickly that they could be the guys in the 1980s who are like, we don't need computers. We have paper. You know, like <laughs> they're, they yeah. carry that risk because they repeatedly looked at quickly and said, no, like they repeatedly were like, this paper is sweet. We're, we're good. We don't, this technology that's, uh, it's too, uh, it's too small. You know, it's not big enough to handle the type of shit we're trying, we're trying to move, you know, like but this paper stuff is solid. I truly believe that if quickly hits his ceiling in Toronto, and he's playing in all-star games, which I think he can play, that looks really, really bad. And not because they traded him. People trade guys who become all-stars all the time. But find me another situation where a guy, you know, like like the James Harden situation in OKC. Maybe James Harden didn't think he could reach his true potential in OKC, but I promise you he was playing in OKC. And I promise you that OKC would have kept him around and would have played him as much as he wanted if he was still in OKC. You know, and no, I don't think Emmanuel Quickly is going to be peak James Harden, who is one of the greatest basketball players to ever live. I'm just saying, I don't know how many other examples you have of a guy becoming an all-star coming from a situation where he returned huge impact and that team just didn't play him more, like just refused to find out what he could be. Yeah, I think that's perfectly, that's a perfect bow on on the end of it. And I agree with you. Obviously, I think the Knicks do hold the risk there. Um, though I, I, I was saying this on the day of the trade. Um, the one thing that was kind of giving me some solace was what Jeremy Cohen was saying on the Knicks Film School podcast, which is that, which is an obvious thought when you think about it but it was helpful him saying it which is that in any trade this it's not a zero-sum situation it's not like you know one team wins and the other team loses necessarily both teams could win maybe toronto wins more and gets a, a you know a higher level higher ceiling impact player in manual quickly if he reaches his potential but it could also be that the knicks still win as well and, and og and anobi fits perfectly and does what he did in the most recent game against minnesota and you know is a perfect fit and is the perfect piece to to kind of 
work well together when they get cobbled together a championship level roster. So it could be a win-win and, situation. And to be totally fair, something I said back in the feels like years ago, uh, days of, oh, should the Knicks trade Julius Randle so that they can free up space for Obi? One of the arguments that I repeatedly made in, you know, when we did the pro con section, people always said like, well, you can't trade Julius Randle for 75 cents on the dollar. And I would always say, you have to include the new Obi that you're getting without Julius Randle as a part of the return. Because just the non-existence of Randall means you're getting a new player in Obi Top and he's not playing, you know, 18 minutes a night. He has a bit of a more expanded role to be more impactful. The removing Emmanuel quickly and RJ Barrett from the equation and adding OG and Anobi, you're not just adding OG and Anobi. You know, you're getting more from Quentin Grimes. Maybe Quentin Grimes becomes a better trade asset because of Emmanuel quickly being gone. Uh, you're getting more from DiVincenzo. DiVincenzo is, has been super impactful recently. Amazing basketball player on both both sides of the court. Almost exactly what you need from a shooting guard, uh, a shooting guard role player. All these things add up, and they can count going forward. And so, I don't think the the final result or the final um, verdict on the trade can truly be in until we figure out like who do these other players become without quickly and RJ, what else do the Knicks do? Do they trade for DeJounte Murray? Do they trade for Donovan Mitchell? Do they trade for, you know, Shams talked about Carl Anthony Towns today. I know we don't love some of those options might like some better than others. But my point is, is that all of these things are a part of this decision. And so while maybe we do seem a bit rash or like we have our minds made up, Please understand if you're listening to this, we are two of the most open-minded people, two of the most fungible people you'll ever hear talk about this stuff. And our methodologies and our views on things are always evolving with new information. So I hope anybody listening here is uh, keep maintains an open mind like that as well, because who knows what this will look like in a month, two months, two years that we have to keep uh, re- adjusting our viewpoint based on the new information. Yeah, well fucking said and well fucking heard, goddammit. That's all I'll say to that. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree. I think I think that's all right. I don't really have more to add to it. Dante DiVincenzo is shooting 43.6% in catch-and-shoot threes, um, 46% on wide-open threes. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. This is definitely a tangential side note, but just you brought him up, and he's playing amazing, but... <clears throat> I don't know that that's sustainable. I don't know that that's like a real thing. I don't I don't know that DiVincenzo is going to, you know, have one of the best shooting seasons in the history of the NBA. You know, I, I don't know that. And I think he'll, he'll still continue to confer a ton of impact. But I always say this, you know, and I always say the same thing, which is when your impact comes from one specific thing that you're doing like way above average or way above what your career numbers say or way above like what the league average is i that always is a little suspicious to me and i'm not saying all of his impact is coming from there um but i I think a lot of his impact is is from the shooting being like completely lights out like irrationally amazing um so we've done this before this season and i took the opposing side and ended up being laughably wrong and i had to 
you know, bow before my God XJ. So I'm going to do it. I'm <laughs> clipping it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to take the opposing side again and we'll see how it ages. So if you look at, if you, if you turn Dante DiVincenzo's like true shooting and three point percentage into a graph over his last five seasons. Yeah. Since his 22 year old season in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. it's, you know, so it's 55, 54. Then he didn't play too much in 2022, 50.8. Then last season, Golden State is 59.4. This season, it's 64.1. Mm-hmm. So this season is definitely an outlier. That's just true shooting. Yep. And then um, three-point percentage is 33.6, 37.9, 33.9, 39.7, 44.3. So again, the three-point percentage is an outlier. I agree that it's unlikely he finishes the season shooting 44.3% from three. I That would be a really, really impressive leap. But one thing I do want to say is if you look at all of his seasons before Golden State, he was asked to do way more, way more in Milwaukee and Sacramento. He was assisted on 81%, 78%, 82%. Then he goes to Golden State. Everybody knows the Golden State offense. You know, that's one of the most beautiful offenses we've seen along with the Spurs in the modern era of basketball. He's assisted on 92.7% of his three-point attempts. Really, really high enough. Almost all of them were catch and shoot. This season, he's being assisted on 97.6% of his three-point attempts or his his three-point makes. He's basically only catch and shooting. He's not even like going around screens and pulling up. He, he, it's Mm -hmm. all catch and shoots off of, I do think that lends itself to being a little bit more efficient, even if it's artificial. Um, But on the other hand, if you're removing the bottom floor attempts and replacing those with Jalen Brunson possessions, Julius Randle possessions from an impact perspective, that's good. Um, And so if DiVincenzo continues to be assisted on nearly all of his threes, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect a small bump in his efficiency. I absolutely hear what you're saying. I well, the funny thing about it is if you remove if you remove the harder attempts, let's say pull up threes from his attempts this year, his percentage would go down. <laughs> He's shooting 53.3% on pull up three pointers this year. A very not that many, but <laughs> I mean that's absurd. That's nonsense. But you, but you, know? but you said he's shooting forty three point nine percent on catch and shoot threes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And yeah. he's being assisted on ninety eight percent of his threes, which most of which are going to be catch and shoot threes. My point is just that that is indicative of a player being on a heater less so than it is indicative of like this being the new level the player is at. If they're sh- if they're shooting fifty three percent on pull up threes, like. And I'm, I don't think he's ever touched forty percent on pull up threes before. Like to me, that just means he's on a That's heater fine. right now. Yeah. It no, I agree with you, but I'm saying that even if you remove those, he's still shooting forty three percent or whatever from three. Yeah, which would be if you which would be those, really good. At, right. You're looking right. at it as less. I'm looking at it as still higher than he'd ever shot before. No, I'm looking at it as an indicator of like the forty three point six is not real. Because the 53.3 exists. That's my point. If he's shooting 53.3 on pull-up threes, then I'm saying that's an indicator that he's shooting above his actual level. 
including the catch and shoot threes. So I, if the when the fifty three point three drops, uh, the forty three point six I believe also will not to the same level, of course, but. My point is just like, I don't think DiVincenzo is this level of a shooter. And I think the fact that he has been, and we've seen the games where it's just like, bro, when DiVincenzo is open, it's going in. It's like prime Steve Novak, like, oh yeah, he's open. It's a hundred percent. He's going to make it. I can like close my eyes and turn away and I know it's good. I just don't think that's going to sustain. And I, and I, and I, I, I think he's going to shoot 40% this year, which is incredible and would still be a huge boon to this offense, especially in his role. And I hear what you're saying. Most of his shots, if not almost all of his shots are catch and shoot open threes. And that's great. At the same time, despite that, if I look at those same indicators through across his career and recall, he played with Steph Curry, meaning that he wasn't getting like, okay, yeah, maybe some were all pull up threes, but he wasn't getting like better quality shots playing with Brunson and Randall than he was playing with Steph Curry. Um, I don't think so. So yeah, I, I, I think, I think there's some of the indicators going both ways, but I don't think that, you know, I, I still don't think it's sustainable um, to, for him to shoot at this level. Even if they, even if he got the same exact looks, they were all wide open looks, all wide open catch and shoot threes, very easy, low level difficulty, just catching and knock it down. I still don't think he's going to shoot that level because I think that that's that, that's a rare level of shooter, and maybe DiVincenzo is that level of shooter. I'm not saying that's not a possibility or out of the question, but I'll be surprised if that's the case. And I'll come on here and say, "Damn, he is that good a shooter. That's crazy. That's awesome." But I don't think that's going to happen. That's just like if I had to call it one way or another, that's not what I would bet on. Yeah, and I'm not arguing that he's going to sustain this like level of outlier shooting. I'm just saying given he's shooting off to catch more than he ever has, it could there could be an artificial efficiency bump happening that's making him look better than before when he actually isn't that much better than before. And so if he were that's to fair. settle in it and if he were to settle in at like 41%, I don't think it's that's beyond any level of sustainability or reason. Yeah, that's fair. Give me a number. <laughs> Since we're going to do this, give me give me the number he's like, going to finish at. That I think he's going to end the season at? Yeah. He's at 44.3 um, on overall threes, right? We're not talking we're not isolating it. You you're baked into your perspective is that he's going to get a lot of catch and shoot threes. Vast majority of his shots are going to be easy shots. So, what do you think his overall three-point percentage is going to be as a result? To be to be totally fair though, from my perspective to hold, he has to continue shooting off the catch this much. So if, if, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. I'm just we, saying, we, so we can, <laughs> yeah. if his percentage um, of threes he's assisted on goes down, that changes the equation. Okay. We can, do you want to go to just catch and shoot threes then? What do you sure. think he's going to shoot on catch and shoot through? Right. Currently 43.6. Where are you going to end the year 40, at? 40, 41. Oh, well, I would say 40 as well. But to shoot 40, he probably has to shoot like 37 the rest of the year or something like that or 38, something like that. Oh, end the season at. My bad. Yeah. Um, Not for the rest of the season. Will will he shoot for the rest of the season? What will he end the season at? That's what I meant. Uh, 42. So he's not going to go. I don't know. I don't. Th- I don't think he's going to be better. What do you want me to say? There's. There's not really a. <laughs> there's not really a threshold here. <laughs> okay, that's fair. It's, you like it's... didn't accept forty or forty-one, and he's at forty-three. You want me to say? You want me to say forty-one point seven? I don't. Know I want you to say forty-three. Here. I want you to say he's going to do this all season. I, because but I he's getting wide said, open, catch and shoot threes. I said he wasn't. 
Yeah, yeah. No, you, you. I, my understanding was that you were saying he's getting so much easier shots than than he has in the past. Yeah, and that's why and he's I shooting say, this insane I percentage. And he'll con- if he continues to get those easier shots, you still think his his shooting percentages will come down? Okay. No, I said, I said, no, I said, if he continues to get the shot profile that he does, mm-hmm. it's reasonable to expect an, a small artificial boost based on his previous seasons of efficiency. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a middle ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a For middle sure. ground here. I agree with you. He's, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. He's shooting 44% now. I don't think that's going to sustain. He shot 39% last season. I think it's okay and not like some crazy outlier if he were to shoot a little bit better than his career high of 39%. Because I do yeah. think that if he's shooting by far the most shots he's ever shot off, off the catch, that lends itself to being more efficient because it's pretty much only good shots. Yeah. No, I, I mean, definitely. The, the, what, what you just said is not not something I would argue with. I mean, that's just true. Um, it's just that I, I look at it like he played with Steph Curry and, you know, I just think, I mean, obviously all of his minutes weren't with Steph Curry, but he played a ton of minutes with Steph Curry. And I imagine he was getting a, a really large helping of easy shots in, in that environment as well. Um, especially some that, you know, came from really good passes, really good rhythm and spacing and all that stuff. So, yeah, I, he's getting a ton of good shots this year, and I think he'll he'll probably be better than he'll probably end this year with a better three point percentage than he ever has in his career. I, I agree with that. I don't know if you've heard XJ, but the Warriors are nine points worse per hundred when Steph plays than when he sits. So uh, <laughs> this guy, this guy, this guy might be a little might be over for him. We we're gonna have to start talking about how the Warriors build around Trace Jackson Davis and the future <laughs> of the team. <laughs> I um. Man, I know we're talking Knicks here, but it's our podcast. We could do whatever we want. Like, I, what do you think about the Steph Curry thing? Because we've texted a little bit about it. His on-offs are bad, largely because of his defense, but his offense hasn't been great either. Like, uh, the 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 Warriors are like, I think, only a little better offensively when he's on the court, and not much, and like way worse defensively when he's on the court. Um, I think. 99% of it is noise. <laughs> that's, I know Fair that's enough. a really, I know that's a, I know that's a really boring answer, but if no, there, my at, least, too, so. <laughs> at least, at least the offensive side of it, um, I think EPM would capture more of it. If something was going on on offense, I'm surprised that EPM grades him out. So averagely defensively because the defense is just getting absolutely thrashed when he plays. And like, when you watch the film, you see a guy like, I always thought that Steph Curry was underrated defensively. I think that he's, he's stronger and bigger. Like remember what he looked like in the 2015 and 2016 finals and how like Kyrie and LeBron just went at him all the time. And he looked like small. He looked like, yeah, he just looked skinny and he doesn't look like that at all now. He's way bulkier. He's jacked, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I th- I've thought since he's like like back when the Cavs were hunting him in those early finals, I thought that in a in the in the macro in a vacuum, he was good at being in the right spots. He's always been a really underrated defensive rebounder, which as we've talked about a lot on here, finishing possessions is really valuable. And when you have a guard who helps you rebound, that helps your defense. Um, he has really good hands, obviously he has really good feet, obviously like he, he's just, he, he has the tools to be a fine defender. 
I don't see much of that anymore. I think he's been just not good at all on that end. Um, yeah. yeah, I just want to yeah, jump yeah. in because you, you mentioned defensive EPM being reflected as average. The, the updated defensive EPM is he is minus 0 0.9, which is 33rd percentile in the NBA. In terms of percentile defensive standing, this is the lowest of his career, like including his rookie season ever in his entire career. This is the worst he's looked defensively. Um, and that's, I, I don't know why I thought that minus 0 0.9 would be closer to the 50th percentile. That was just an oversight by my, uh, by me. I think, I think because for total EPM, like yeah. a slight negative is around the 50th percentile. So I was De assuming that. defensive EPMs have a, a narrower, uh, margin, yeah. uh, a less wide margin. Um, they're, they're not going to be as high, you know, obviously offensive EPMs, you can see up to like eight, nine, um, but defensive, the probably the max you'll see is like close to four, if that. And so they also don't go as low, um, generally speaking. Yeah. Tyrese Halliburton is back on top of the offense, which that game against Milwaukee last night was just, <laughs> I mean, it was really fun to watch and, OB, OB finished the game like plus 33. Like, <laughs> plus 34 just, in 29 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Just wild to watch it. That, that Bucks, Bucks Pacers, like I hope they play in the playoffs. I hope that's the 2 7 or the 3 6 matchup. Whatever. That'd be so because fun. That'd be so they, fun. They fucking hate each other. Like there's so, <laughs> there's so much contempt between the two teams. I don't know if you saw like Halliburton shit. Did you hear what the the Bucks announcer, the Bucks announcer called Halliburton like he he's basically Wally 2.0. Called him a pre, <laughs> he called he called, called him a prima donna wannabe all star. No, like, what? It, it, Why would he yeah. use the same terminology as Wally? What, what's wrong with this person? But I didn't it, hear that. How are we still having these conversations about Halliburton? <laughs> it's yeah, like, who knows? Just, it'll never end until he wins a championship, and then it'll say, "Do it again." And it's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, Are we sure Nikola Jokic's style can lend <laughs> itself to winning basketball? <laughs> not sure about it yet. We'll have to see if he can win a second championship how, before. How funny confirm. is it, by the way? How funny is it, by the way, XJ, that last year you and I were like the only two who were like what are we doing here? Jokic has to win MVP. And we have all these people who are like, oh, it's Embiid's time. You can't give Jokic three straight MVPs. All the dumbest arguments you'll hear. And then now, Embiid is going to be like the worthy MVP. And you're going to have all those same people being like, can't give it to Embiid. He can't do it in the playoffs. <laughs> and we are going to have to be like, no, you can give it to him. He oh finally deserves the MVP. Please give it to him. That's so <laughs> funny. I've been thinking about that. It's like Embiid is not going to win this year's MVP. And if the, if he's lucky, it'll be because he doesn't hit the 65 game threshold. Yeah. But it, he, I just don't think he's going to win it, even though this is like the rightful year for his MVP. He's been dominant. He's been better. On both ends of the court, he's been way more consistent. His passing has gotten like so much better. His his two man game with Tyrese Maxey is incredible. Like this is the MB this is the Embiid year that people thought last year was, and yep. he's gonna be hard pressed to actually win it this year, which is hilarious. <laughs> I gotta be honest. Um, I hope oh, I hope yeah. if he doesn't win it, it's Shea that wins it though. Shea's not gonna win it. Shea, I would love if Shea won it too. He's just not going to though. I, I, so who's I, gonna I, win it? Dude, they're gonna give it to like Giannis or or Luca. I think those are. They're the gonna guys. give it to Tate. Oh, Luca, that sounds right. Yeah, Lu God. it's Luca's time. It's Luca's rightful Dude, time. It's his the... time, and he's a walking <laughs> triple double. 
my that's God. how it goes. Um, that's how it goes. But what if uh, what if they what if they what if they have to play in the plan? He can't still win MVP then, right? No, if they're in the plan, he won't. They won't give it. No, there's no chance they'll give it to him. Um, and they won't give it to Giannis if they're not the one seed. I don't think because then people will be like, "Oh, what about Tatum?" Which is funny in its own right. Tatum, Tatum um, has a chance too. I think. Dude, how could SGA not win? I think. What if they're uh, just the one seed? Maybe we're maybe we're betting here. I, I think there's almost no chance SGA wins the, SG, the MVP this year. No chance. I think I think there's probably a maybe I would say at this point like 50-50 chance he's going to be have earned it and probably should win the MVP based on his overall impact and how great he's been and an uplifting a you know an OKC team that no one saw coming and being this good so fast. So I think there's a 50-50 shot he actually deserves the MVP. I think there's a 1% chance he wins the MVP. I just don't I just can't imagine it. Can I can I tell you the live betting odds at the moment? Yeah, I would love that. I don't know what they are. Wait, wait, can so, I guess? Sure. Guess 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 what who you think the top 5 is. Top 5 not in a specific order cuz I'm not sure, but I would say sure. Embiid, Luka, Giannis, Jokic, and probably some weird something random that doesn't make sense like a Tatum. Like Tatum? Like yeah. Tatum? <laughs> yeah. The top 5 is 5th Giannis at plus 1200. Tied for third, Luca at plus four fifty and SGA mm-hmm. at plus four fifty. Huh. Okay. All right. Well Embiid right. is second at plus two seventy five, and then your leader is Nikola Jokic. <laughs> <laughs> Give it back to Jokic. Yes. That'd just be flip so flop it. funny. That'd be oh. hilarious. It's like I'm gonna have to argue. Am I gonna have to go on the Embiid should be MVP like rampage that I went on with the Jokic one? That'd be hilarious. That oh, would man. like vindicate or validate our process, though. Mm. Like, because it would show that it's not like we were like Jokic homers. I mean, you posted the other, you posted this on Twitter the other day. Like, people are like, oh my God, you just love Emmanuel quickly. And it's like, no, shut up. I don't. Like, I just love what he does for his basketball teams. Like, why can't, why stop projecting your biases and your, that shit exactly. on top? like yeah and yes we love Nikola Jokic because he's really fucking good at basketball but I promise you the second he doesn't deserve to win MVP we will be rational enough and objective enough to say he doesn't deserve to win MVP and if yeah. things keep shaking out this season this way he's not going to deserve to win MVP exactly yeah it's a it's a ton of projection onto like how other people might think about these players and yeah to me it's like I am not I'm I'm loyal to <laughs> what I think is actually happening, not to any specific player or anything like that. So, you're yeah, you're uh, Nick's Twitter Sam Hinky. You're loyal to the process. <laughs> wow, I mean, my my KFS colleagues would agree with that probably that I'm a Sam 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 Hinky type, but um, I don't think that <laughs> <laughs> they they, that they wouldn't the most... mean it. They wouldn't they wouldn't mean it as a compliment. They would not mean it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> 